Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Corporate Grime. I'm Anthony Clan, investigative journalist and editor of The Klaxon, investigative news site. Joined with me is Professor Andrew Schmulo, uh, an expert in corporate governance. Um, between us, we've, we've got a lot of experience in, in the sector of corporate, uh, corporate Australia and wrongdoing in corporate Australia and um, we've got quite a few things to share. So we thought we'd, we'd, we'd run this podcast. Um, Professor Schmulo um, has, has a wide history, one of the, the nation's top uh, corporate governance experts. He's uh, briefed the UN. Uh, yesterday, he was in Canberra briefing a Senate inquiry. Um, so we, we thought we'd, we'd kick off today just by having a look at, um, a look at a couple of the things that were raised yesterday um, at, at the Senate inquiry into ASIC, which is the corporate regulator. Um, welcome, Andy. Hi, Anthony. Lovely to be with you. Uh, excited about this first podcast and for people who've um, taken the time and trouble to to log in or I'm not I'm not a tech fundy what does one call it when you listen to a podcast is it log in log on I think it's just listen listen okay I'm not either mind you um tremendously grateful to um to have a moment of your time I'll try and make it worth your while and uh uh I hope you'll find this interesting, but but most of all, great appreciation to you for taking the time and trouble to to listen. So yesterday, um, Andy, you were in in Canberra um, at a Senate inquiry. Can you just give us a little bit of information about what 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 went on there, and also why were you there? You, you presumably provided a submission regarding the, the corporate regulator. Yep. So. Uh, there's been a, a, a sort of a slow-burning brouhaha uh, with ASIC. ASIC is the Australian Securities and Investments Commission. It's a Commonwealth government authority. It is a law enforcement agency. It is responsible for enforcing six different pieces of legislation. I think it's six. The main ones being the Corporations Act, the ASIC Act, the National Consumer Credit Protection Act, uh, It's a tremendously important Commonwealth authority because it is the law enforcement agency uh, for pretty much most, if not all, potential white-collar crime in in Australia. So making it effective and ensuring that it's effective and ensuring that it does its job is tremendously important. A scandal erupted when a fellow by the name of John Adams, he's an economist, uh, and I speak to John regularly. Uh, I, I don't see eye to eye with John on many of his views, but um, he's entitled to his views, and there are some of his there are some of his views that I, I do share, and those relate to the efficacy of ASIC. John, being an economist, did what's called a regression analysis, and he looked at ASIC enforcement, and he crunched the numbers. And he came to the conclusion that of all the complaints that are submitted to ASIC, they take enforcement action 0.03% of the time. That is remarkable. So if you engage in corporate criminal behavior, and there's a big scandal around the the float of Nuix shares, for example, uh, if you engage in some kind of white-collar crime, there is a 99.97% chance nothing will happen. 
Wow. And that signal is understood and heard loud and clear in the market, particularly in large corporations. When ASIC does take steps against uh, white-collar criminals and against corporate entities, the research indicates, research, for example, published by the very eminent Professor Ian Ramsey and George Gilligan, and they looked at ASIC enforcement and they looked at CDPP enforcement. On the very rare occasions when ASIC does take steps, it only goes after individuals in small firms. They don't go anywhere near the top end of town. It's the small fry. It's the small fish. Um, for example, I mean, one, one example, um, just to butt in there, having covered uh, ASIC for the best part of 20 years as a financial journalist, um, you would see that they, they put out press statements on, on action they've taken, but it'll be um, the small operator. Um, and the, the, on the occasion, for example, that you see Westpac, which, which breaks the law, um, a re remarkable amount of the time, but when there's actually action against Westpac, it's Westpac, the bank, paying out money uh, in fines. It's not individuals, although when it is individuals on the on, on the rare occasion, it's the bank teller that's done something wrong or someone right at the bottom. It's never, ever higher up the chain where the true problems lie. Um, is that your experience as well, Andy? Westpac is a, is a particular case that I'd like to come back to, the 23 million breaches of anti-money laundering counter-terrorism financing laws. Yep. But you know what I thought was really interesting was the testimony that was given before mine, far, testimony far more interesting than mine, testimony given by Professor Alan Fells. Alan Fells was the foundation chair of the ACCC and is widely regarded as one of the best regulators that this country's ever produced. And the ACCC being the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, which is the, 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 the competition regulator. Correct. The other big one along with ASIC. Correct. Uh, Alan Fells developed a stellar reputation, tough as nails, uncompromising, uh, possessed of tremendous intellectual horsepower, the ability and the willingness to wield that intellectual horsepower to bat away arguments that would, would, be, would be put before the ACCC that uh, would be self-serving and disingenuous and not particularly true. For example, I remember a long time ago, there was a, a move to uh, amalgamate, uh, to merge Qantas and Air New Zealand. And Alan Fells just said, no, it's bad for competition. Answers, no. And Qantas wielded their very considerable political influence mm. and their very considerable political might which we've seen on display in the last couple of months. Entirely. Where um, the CEO of Qantas, Alan Joyce, eventually had to step down, step down in the last month or so. Qantas has just been running the Australian government when it comes to anything to do with aviation policy. And they've just got their tentacles and their hooks so deeply into every every area of the Australian government that they are, they even though they are privatised, they are still operating with the same level of impunity as if they were still a state-owned corporation. 
It's, and it's, Qantas it's textbook, brought... textbook industry capture, isn't it, really? Absolutely. Where the, the industry ends up running the show that, that's supposed to be policed by the government, but it's actually pulling the strings. We have no consumer law apply. We have virtually no consumer law applying to airfares. We have no airfare, air, uh, airline ombudsman. Qantas has well and truly got its its tentacles wrapped around the throat of the Australian government, and they brought considerable pressure to bear on the ACCC to allow the the merger with Air New Zealand. And Alan Fells just stood his ground and said, "What part of no don't you understand? Yeah, right. Is it the N or is it the O?" <laughs> And Alan Fells gave testimony yesterday, and I have to say, the things that he said uh, were were absolutely gobsmacking. They they, I'm I'm very proud and very pleased to say, the central the the central message that he delivered was identical to the one I delivered. But who who am I, right? I'm not important. If I if I criticize ASIC, you can very easily turn around and go, yeah, yeah, Andy, that's what you always say. But when Alan Fells does it, the the most respected regulator that this country has produced, the chair of a of a federal government authority, equal in stature to the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, then it's a different story. And let me tell you about some of the things he said. Mm. He said that he's been observing ASIC throughout his career. And his career would have started, uh, I'm not sure when he became chair of the ACCC, but it probably would have been... The late 90s. 20 years ago. Yeah. He said, I've been observing ASIC throughout its career and they, their enforcement culture is very poor. So there, so there you have it. So we've got a 2014 Senate inquiry that said ASIC's enforcement culture is so bad we need a royal commission. They said mm. ASIC is weak, feckless and suborned. We had criticisms of ASIC's enforcement culture in the financial system inquiry in 2014. We had criticisms of ASIC's enforcement culture by the Treasury Capability of Capability Review. We had an excoriation of ASIC's enforcement culture delivered by the 2019 Hain Banking Royal Commission. And now we've got Alan Fells saying it. I think that we can conclude ASIC's enforcement culture is very, very poor. It'd be difficult finding anyone in the sector um, who doesn't have a vested interest, such as those who are being policed and ASIC itself, that would, would claim otherwise. I, I certainly haven't heard too many people um, championing ASIC and its performance. And, and you raised 2014. I mean, it's only, in my experience, become far less effective since 2014. Actually, far less effective since 2005 or so when I started covering ASIC, but it's, it's, it's continually going down. So. And and that observation ties into my fears about uh, and part, and my fears about and the reasons why I'm doing this podcast, which is to try to to uh, push back against what I see as Australia's slide into crony capitalism. And uh, it's a gradual process. Uh, it's it happens in increments that are so small that you can't notice the difference on a day to day basis. As I said earlier, it's like putting on weight. You don't notice it from day to day, and then you look at a photograph of yourself 10 years earlier and you go, oh my God. Yeah. Uh, it's that kind of process. It's slow, it's incremental, it's insidious, and it is, it is allowed to flourish in an environment where corporate misconduct and corporate lobbying 
is allowed to flourish. So the next thing Alan Fell said was, in terms of ASIC's jurisdiction over the financial industry to deter market misconduct and, cons and ensure consumer protection, when ASIC was proposed by the 1998 Wallace Commission of Inquiry, the Wallace Commission of Inquiry proposed that the market conduct and consumer protection function in the financial industry be housed at the ACCC, not ASIC. And the ACCC is a very effective regulator, yeah. very on the ball, very eager to enforce the law, very good at enforcing the, the law. This is the this is the Commonwealth Government Authority that Alan Fells, the person I'm quoting, used to chair. And he said that the Wallace Inquiry recommended that it be the ACCC that have that jurisdiction, not ASIC. And when he was asked, okay, well, why did it go to ASIC? His response was pure industry lobbying. Wow. There you go. The financial industry lobbied Treasury. And he said, he went on to say, in my experience, Treasury is pretty good at resisting special interests, but they caved to the financial industry. And he said that the, the officials at, in Treasury who made the decision to house this jurisdiction under ASIC, they all revolved to high-paying jobs in the banking industry. Wow. Well, that just sums it up right there, doesn't it? I mean, that's a, the key problem. You've got these sort of revolving doors. Um, I guess another issue that, I, that I've just is gobsmacking, I find gobsmacking, is that governments continue to put in place at ASIC um, inappropriate people in charge, people who are actually um, being involved in the same companies that are that are the, the major wrongdoers or the major companies are, or, and in positions um, where they've you know, potentially been involved in covering up or answering to authorities over wrongdoing. Is, is that something you've seen? Uh, yes, and I, I'm, l l let me turn to that in a moment. Let me, if I may, just complete a thought about what I was saying earlier. Alan Fells said that the reason why the industry lobbied for the jurisdiction to go to ASIC and not the ACCC is because they knew ASIC would be less on their backs about enforcement. Wow. So this is what's happened, right? 20 years ago, the financial industry said, to hell with, to hell with being regulated by the ACCC, those bastards will enforce the law. We can't have that. Ring up the treasurer ring up Treasury, explain to them we're the banking industry, we tell you what to do, then you do it, which is exactly what happened. Yeah. And so we've had 20 years of exactly what the industry wanted, extremely poor enforcement. And under those conditions of extremely poor enforcement, guess what happened? Misconduct went out of control, right? The notion that people will behave themselves if you treat them like adults, forget about it. People will behave themselves if there's a deterrent an adequate, credible deterrent that they will be punished if they mis misbehave themselves. So for 20 years, we've had unrestrained misconduct in the financial industry, eventually culminating in a royal commission. That's how bad it's got. Now, turning to your point about leadership, leadership of these organizations is absolutely crucial. Senator Elizabeth Warren, who created the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau in the United States in the aftermath of the subprime disaster and the global financial crisis, mm. the CFPB, uh, to use its acronym, uh, and, and a federal government agency which is very highly respected, 
and by all accounts does a pretty good job and certainly had a very robust culture, robust enough to resist constant onslaughts from the Trump administration. Senator Elizabeth Warren said, people are policy. You've got to get the right people at the top of the organization from the word go. Bang on. I have, um, I have the great privilege of being in touch with uh, a woman by the name of Patricia McCoy. She, was, she is the Liberty Mutual Professor of Insurance Law at Boston College. She was a senior advisor to the Obama administration. She worked very closely with Elizabeth Warren. She was the foundation deputy chair of the CFPB and right. the foundation deputy chair in charge of mortgages, oh, right? Wow. In charge of mortgages at an organization created because of a mortgage crisis. And she has said to me on many occasions, you've got to get the right people. And when you, when you get the right people, Alan Fells, Graham Samuel, Rod Sims, you build a very strong corporate culture in that government agency that is the correct one and the appropriate one. What Alan Fells said yesterday, he said, there've been too many corporate lawyers who've been appointed as head of ASIC. Now, I'm a corporate lawyer, so that didn't really make sense to me. And I wasn't. I was trying to figure out what he meant. Why? Why a corporate lawyer? Like what? Like why can't a corporate lawyer be head of ASIC and do a really good job? And he was asked to explain what he meant by a corporate lawyer by Senator Jess, Jess Walsh. And he explained it a little bit further. And essentially, what he was trying to say was, if you constantly appoint as the head of the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, if you constantly appoint the head of ASIC, someone who has been a lawyer defending large corporations, you get the wrong people. Because you get people who bring with them a lot of ideological baggage, a lot of ideational baggage, in which they see things from the perspective of the industry that they, try, that they are supposed to regulate. And when I say see things from their perspective, I mean with sympathy. So they sympathize with the plight of industry and it's all so hard and it's all so difficult and all the regulations you want us to comply with, that's the wrong attitude. That's the wrong approach. The head of ASIC is not put there to be an agony aunt for industry. They need prosecutors in there to actually do the job of policing because it's a corporate cop after all. It's supposed to be policing the law. Enforcing of course. The, law. the corporation's actually extremely, extremely powerful piece of legislation, but if you use it, um, otherwise it just sits there. And as evidence of what he's saying, who is the current chair of ASIC? Joe Longo. What did he do in his career? He was general counsel for Deutsche Bank, one of the most fined and penalized banks in the world. Remarkable. And he comes into office and on, the first, on, on his first day in, in the job, there was an article that was written by uh, Michael Pelly. Have I got his name right? That's Michael right. Pelly? Yes the legal affairs editor at the Australian Financial Review. And Michael Pelly wrote an article uh, which went up at six o'clock that morning on, on the Australian Financial Review, an article that I would call a hagiography. So just this fawning, butt-kissing suck-up of an article about how wonderful Uncle Joe is and Joe Longo and he's the son of an immigrant and... He's such a good guy and he comes from humble, humble background and 
Um, he's the new head of ASIC, and he says, he and his 2RC, Sarah Court, why not litigate his dead? Now, for listeners who not afraid with the significance of what I've just said, we had a banking royal commission in Australia in 2019. Royal commission has very extensive powers. It has more powers than a court. It can, can compel a witness to give evidence. <clears throat> that royal commission was headed by a former high court judge. So for those in, if you're, if you're in the United States, for example, that's the equivalent of the US Supreme Court. It was headed by a former Australian high court judge, Kenneth Hayne. And um, it found that there was extremely extensive misconduct in the financial industry. And the Hayne Commission found that ASIC was not enforcing the law. And Commissioner Hayne gave ASIC an instruction. And the instruction was, when you see the law being broken, you must always ask yourself, why not litigate? In other words, if you see the law being broken, you must ask yourself, is there a reason why we should not take this to court? Which should be, you'd think would be common sense. Well, funny you should say that because ASIC, ASIC has been appearing before the Senate inquiry, the one that I appeared before yesterday. They've been appearing before the Senate inquiry and they've been at great pains to convey how, I'm going to put this in the Australian vernacular, it's so hard, it's so difficult, it's all too hard when asked why they don't enforce the law. When those same questions were put to Alan Fells, the difference in, in the reaction and the difference in the response, it was chalk and cheese. His, his response was, well, I don't understand that. Like, if there are laws on the statute books, if parliaments passed laws, then my job as a regulator is enforce the law. It's literally their job. Actually yeah. gets about $500 million a year from taxpayers. Um, come on, guys. Yeah, he said, we don't, we don't even ask ourselves those questions. Why not litigate? We just litigate. Of course. We see the law being, being broken. We take people to court. We don't, we, there's no kind of hand-wringing about it and should we or shouldn't we or are there public policy grounds? If the law's being broken, we're off to court. Can, can you imagine a police commissioner getting up there and saying, oh, look, yeah, no, it's all too hard. We didn't bother. It's, it's, it's absurd, but it's the same thing. These are, these are laws that carry uh, potentially um, jail terms, are many of the laws. Um, they're very serious crimes. People can be massively hurt. Someone said to me once, you know, it's, it's easier. You can come back from, you know, uh, uh, um, getting stabbed or something, if you, but you never come back from, um, from someone wiping out your financial future. Or someone said you can come back from getting punched or something, but you can't come back from someone stealing your financial future. That's exactly right. So you've got this sort of rampant white-collar crime, and I'm not exaggerating there, um, that, that goes largely unchecked and, and, in a way, tacitly facilitated by ASIC refusing to do its job. Well, Melbourne University, uh, academics at Melbourne University published a paper which listeners can Google and look up called the Fin Future White Paper. And they estimated that 54% of the adult population of Australia has suffered detriment through misconduct in the financial industry. 54% wow. in a population of 24 million. So wow. let's say uh, in a population of 24 million, what would the adult population be? I'm going to take a, I'm going to take a thumb, suck, thumb suck and I'm going to say 18 million. 18 million people might be over the age of 18. 
Am I too high? Is it lower? Do we have a larger portion of the population that are under the age of 18? Let's say it's, let's say it's 18 million. That's 9 million people out of a population of 24 who've suffered detriment because of, the, of misconduct in the financial industry. And the detriment that they've suffered, according to the Fin Future White Paper, is worth in excess of $200 billion. Wow. And guess how many people ASIC has sent to jail? Guess how many large corporations ASIC's prosecuted? None. None. And I think that's borne out. I mean, one of the one of the issues, and this is just a this is a slam dunk. This is a really straightforward breach of the law. This is basic stuff. Um, ASIC, uh, a lot of the banks were um, providing financial advice in, in inverted commas, getting people to uh, invest in their own products. What they were doing was they were charging these uh, large commissions or commissions against people's you know, superannuation balances for financial advice, but they weren't actually receiving anything. So it was provable. It was, you were charging for this advice, you didn't give any advice, bang, you know, there's the crime. Now, hundreds of millions of dollars, literally hundreds of millions have been paid by the big four banks um, to victims, but not one person, not one individual has faced any action whatsoever. And these, um, these, these fines keep coming up over years and years, and they're enormous, um, not nearly as big as they need to be, um, obviously, because it keeps going. But the fact you haven't got a single individual held to account is just remarkable. And then that's just the tip of the iceberg. That's the that's the the the, um, the lay down misere of of action. I mean, you you can straight away prove. Did you get advice? No, you didn't. Okay, done. Um, but when it comes to even slightly more complicated issues, ASIC just doesn't seem to want to have a bar of it. In fact, those one of the ways in which those. Cases came to light, the fees for, for advice scandal. Fee, fee for no service, they call fees it. Fees for no service scandal is that there were admissions by the companies in question that, yes, they didn't provide the advice because, yes, they concede they didn't actually have any advisors. They had wow. no one to provide the advice and they were still charging for the advice, but it gets worse. AMP, Australian Mutual Proprietors, which is Australia's uh, – I, I guess certainly Australia's oldest and most venerable life assurer. I don't know whether it's still the biggest. I'd be surprised if it's, it's still it's, the biggest. It's, it's, it, yeah, it's shrunk somewhat, it's, but it's still one of the biggest financial service providers and superannuation providers. Um, it, it's up there with the big ones, yeah. They were found to have been charging life insurance premiums to customers they knew were dead. So was Westpac. Really? Yes. Commissioner Haynes said at the Banking Royal Commission, he said, so you were charging life insurance premiums where you knew there was no longer a life to insure. And do you know, it came out in evidence that they'd had meetings at AMP to try and figure out how they could make it legal to keep charging dead people life insurance premiums wow. and keep charging dead people for financial advice. And they, they discussed in, in meetings, the minutes of which were uh, made available to the Royal Commission, they discussed in those meetings whether they could maybe bury it in the fine print of the contract wow. so that if 60 minutes turned around and stuck a camera in their face and went, you're charging dead people for financial advice, or you're charging dead people for life insurance premiums, they could turn around and go, it's, it's in the contract, it's not illegal. Nobody... Nobody, nobody has been prosecuted. No individuals have had to bear any responsibility whatsoever. 
and that's that's where it comes into being just a cost of doing business. Now, if it's it's this cozy circular um, motion where you've got, uh, say, a big bank does the wrong thing, knows if it gets caught, it's just going to pay a bit of a fine, but it's making vastly more from doing it, so it just eats into its profits a little bit. It factors it in cost of doing business. When you go after directors or people who have actually done the wrong thing individually, that's when you see a difference in uh, difference in outcomes. You, you see people thinking, "Hey, I might not do this. I could end up." You know, in jail or, or personally fined. Even even the directors aren't personally fined. And there was a, a move to introduce penalties against bankers breaking the law, and that was um, quickly reversed, wasn't it? Yeah, um, we have we've copied into Australia a British uh, initiative. The they they call it the Senior Manager Certification Regime. We copied it in, into Australia first. It was called the Bear, the Bank Executive Accountability Regime, and then uh, that bear regime accountability for bank executives was then extended to executives for the entire financial industry in a piece of legislation called the Financial Accountability Regime Act. And here's where here's here's where you see a really good example of Australia's slide into crony capitalism, and you see this the soft corruption and this influence peddling and this undue influence that's being wielded over government. So. The Financial Accountability Regime Bill was enacted ostensibly to make individual executives in the financial industry accountable, and here let me be very clear, to make them accountable if it could be shown that they had turned a blind eye to misconduct. So I want to be very clear. The the Act was not going to penalise bank executives if there'd been some form of misconduct in the bowels of a vast organization that they knew nothing about. This was going to punish them. If, Anthony, you were a, a, a member of the board of directors or you were a member of, a, of the C-suite at a major Australian bank, and I came to you and I said to you, sir, I have found evidence of misconduct. I have found that we are charging dead customers for financial advice. And you turned around and you said, you worry too much. Don't worry about it. You don't worry about it, which is exactly what happened. Matthew Komen, just the CEO of Commonwealth Bank, yes, recounted on the witness stand when he was when he was called into the witness stand at the Banking Royal Commission, he said the following. He said that he had discovered evidence that Commonwealth Bank was selling junk insurance. They were selling insurance to customers who were automatically ineligible for that insurance. So they were paying a premium for cover that they could never use and that there would be, he estimated, about 250,000 customers in that, in that position. So he went to see the then CEO, Ian Narev, the highest paid executive in Australia, the CEO of the biggest bank and the biggest company in Australia. And according to Mr. Coman's testimony, and granted, we haven't heard testimony from Mr. Narev, but Mr. Komen's testimony is on the record and Mr. Narev has never disputed it. It was never contested, that's for sure. He went to see Ian Narev and he said to him, Sir, I'm concerned that we're breaking the law. We're selling junk insurance. Um, and this is a conduct risk. And according to his testimony, Mr. Narev turned around to him and said to him, Matt, you need to temper your sense of injustice. Remarkable. In and other just- words... Mate, 
you need to learn to look the other way. You need to stop worrying about things that we might be doing that might not be kosher. Don't don't worry about it, mate. All that you need to worry about. All you need to worry about is how much money we're making. So um, we see this. We see this having. We we have seen this in in many instances where bank executives turned a blind eye. So we introduced this legislation that says if you turn a blind eye. Not, and we can pro- and we can prove it. Like and that's another. It. It's, a, it's a high. It's a high hurdle to actually yeah. for, for regulated to prove it. Not prove if there's people. a bank teller in the back of beyond in a branch you've never heard of who's taking money from a customer. We're not going to hold you responsible for that. We're just going to hold you responsible where somebody comes and says to you something's going wrong, and you go sit down and shut up. The bill, the act, let me, I'm trying to think how to explain this because I went and gave testimony to the Senate on this. It's an immensely complex story. Treasury drafted a bill which would have imposed $1.1 million fines on bank executives. The Australian Bankers Association got hold of the treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, and they went, are you kidding? Are you out of your mind? The people you're going to find, they're bank executives, mate. You can't do that to bank executives because this is Australia. Don't you know who we are? We run the country. Did you forget that? So what did Josh Frydenberg, the then treasurer, do? He stripped the $1.1 million fines out of the bill. But he did it by way of an immensely complex bait-and-switch trick. So it requires a very detailed analysis of the legislation, and you have to do it in a mind map, and you have to do it in a flow chart. And the way it works is like this. They, they wrote the legislation so that it says the following. Section 20 says, if you turn a blind eye to misconduct, we'll hold you personally responsible. Then you go down to Section 83, and it says, you'll only be held responsible if you breach a civil penalty provision. So then you've got to go to another piece of legislation to see what a civil penalty provision is. And you realize that a civil penalty provision is a penalty that has the words civil penalty provision at the bottom of the section. So then you go back to section 20, the one that says, if you turn a blind eye, we'll fine you, doesn't have the word civil penalty provision. So what would happen is we'd go to court and you'd say to the judge, Clan turned a blind eye to misconduct, and Clan's lawyers will go jump up and go, yeah, so what are you going to do about it? Oh, well, there's Section 20. Yeah, Section 20 can't be used against Mr. Clan because it's not a civil penalty provision. At which point, ASIC walks out of court with their head hung low, and they go, well, well, we lost the case, and there seems to be a deficiency in the law. And and everybody goes, oh, shock, surprise. Why is there this deficiency in the law? Who would have spotted that? I spotted it. I took it before the Senate. I explained to them what the deficiency was. But because we because we have a country where we've had a change of party but not a change of government, they were not interested. So in a minority report that was issued by the Greens, uh, the, the Australian Greens by Senator Nick McKim, he wrote a minority report in which he said this is outrageous. There are no personal accountability measures in this bill. We don't support this bill. And he did a deal with the treasurer 
that in return for the Greens supporting other legislation, the Treasurer would reintroduce $1.1 million fines. So he did. The Treasurer reintroduced $1.1 million fines. That was reported by Charlotte Grieve in the Sydney Morning Herald in an article that went up at 6 o'clock in the morning on the day she reported it. At midday that day, six hours later, she ran another article to say that the government had reversed its position, that the Treasurer had received a phone call from the Australian Bankers Association. Oh, heavens. And had decided to take the provisions, the $1.1 million fines out of the bill, and there would be no penalties for individuals. And I've been told by... The head head of the Australian Bankers Association? Anna Bly? Anna Bly, the former Premier of Queensland. Yep. And I used to have a lot of respect for Anna Bly. She was a conviction politician. She did a great job with the Queensland floods. Boy, hasn't she just become a... It's 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 terrible. I, I think an important thing now. I was uh, screamed at by an Australian Banking Association PR guy. Not that I'm, you know, not that it was a huge concern to me, given that happens a fair bit in PR people. Um, but I was working at the Australian newspaper at the time, and I was looking into the superannuation sector. It was 2018, early 2018. Um, and Anna Bly, the Australian Bankers Association, the bank, uh, the banks were covering up the extreme gouging and rorting that they were engaging in and continue to engage in in the, in the superannuation sector. And I had a simple question I put through on email. How much does Mrs. Bly, how much has she paid in her role at the Australian Bank Association? And I had this PR, it's inappropriate, screaming at me, et cetera, et cetera. Why would it be inappropriate to know how much a person in the public eye who, who's the lobby, head of the lobby group for the Banking Association is paid? Um, so that was a very, very sensitive nerve. So I imagine it's an awful lot of money. But as I said, we don't know and they don't file accounts. They're not required to because they're not large enough. Um, they don't have a revenue of over $100 million a year. Now, the, the requirement to file accounts for companies and organisations um, was actually lower than that. But Scott Morrison, um, when he was in power under Scott Morrison, it was changed. So now it's even more difficult. There's even less transparency. There's just a couple of points I wanted to raise. When you, regarding the, the, the law, now that rings a, hits a nerve with me. Um, I had a very similar experience again in 2018 and again looking into superannuation. Um, you'll see in a lot of uh, the banks, et cetera, they'll say, oh, look, you know, of course we're doing the right thing. It's, it's by the law that we, we act in the best interests of our members, of the super members, um, and we can face possible jail time. So I was looking into all this gouging and thinking, well, how on earth, um, even, even given ASIC's huge failings and it would be up to ASIC to take action, how on earth is this gouging happening if, if there are these jail terms? Because you look at the legislation, sure enough, there's the, you know, there's the penalty, you know, two, two provisions or two, two, up to two or five years jail. I can't remember which, but it was, it was definitely a jail term. Um, and looking back through, sure enough, if you went back through the different pages of the legislation, the, the penalty wasn't actually attached. So it would say the penalties are, you know, KLM, or for, for example, and you go to the penalty page and it wasn't actually attached to the fine. So you're breaking the law by not being in the best interest technically. But there's no, there's no penalty whatsoever. There wasn't even a fine you could face. And that was baked into the super system in 1993, the compulsory super system. So that's how far back that goes. And no one had, had uncovered this in the public domain, at least, until 2018. Um, and still uh, following that, um, the then finance minister, um, O'Dwyer, Kelly O'Dwyer, um, I, I, they were introducing a law ostensibly to change this, to, to rectify it. And rather than just attaching the penalty to the law, they they introduced some whole other mechanism, which is very similar to what you explained. And sure enough, it was the same result. So um, it, it, it's 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 rampant, and it's you know it's obviously highly concerning. But just while I'm on acid, it's probably worth pointing out Joe Longo, Joseph Longo, the current chair. Now he was appointed 
Now, the reason he was appointed is because the chair before him, James Shipton, had only been in the role about half of his five-year term. Now, he was shown the door. He was outed, ousted because uh, he and his deputy, Daniel Crennan, QC of Melbourne, had overpaid themselves by almost $200,000 in terms of travel entitlements. Now, um, there's a thing called the Remuneration Tribunal, and it sets the, the pay rates for MPs and, and heads of um, uh, heads of major departments, etc. And it says you can only be paid a certain amount. Now, it's a lot. The, the chair of ASIC uh, was about $820,000 at the time. It's even more than that now. So on top of that 820, he charged himself, um, many listeners may remember, $118,000 for personal tax advice, in inverted commas, from KPMG, one of the big four accountancy firms, and we've seen a lot of KPMG and PwC this year. Um, so Daniel Crennan had charged, I think it was about $80,000 for rent uh, in the Sydney, but he also had a home in, in, in Melbourne. So neither of these things were kosher. It wasn't, wasn't all right. So they both stepped down. Um, but then Josh Frydenberg, who was treasurer at the time, um, going back to Josh Frydenberg, he conducted an inquiry or commissioned an external inquiry rather than having any of the actual government regulators look at it paid some Canberra outfit about $100,000 to do this review. Now, the review was done, and then in January um, of the following year, so it was January 21, Josh Frydenberg released this document, and he said everything was fine, uh, James Shipman had engaged in no wrongdoing, etc. Only in that document, um, it had been erased. It wasn't the actual document. It was a document that had instead been prepared by Treasury. Um, and so going through, I, I went through this document painstakingly over several days, and what had happened is they deleted um, key parts of it. So three of the four findings, which actually appeared deep on page, page 48 or something, had just been deleted. There was no reference or anything whatsoever. So we don't know what three quarters of the findings were, um, but presumably it didn't clear Mr. Shipton at all. And um, James Shipton, in the evidence that his lawyers provided, they were extremely damning because they'd been given a, a pre-preliminary uh, copy of the report extremely damning, rejecting all the findings, et cetera, et cetera. So why would they be rejecting the findings if it cleared him entirely? So anyway, he, 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 was, he was out the door after uh, about two and a half, three years in the role, and uh, Joe Longo was appointed. And, you know, I'm, just to circle back to crony capitalism, Kelly O'Dwyer, it is, a, it, is noted, it is notable that Kelly O'Dwyer who appointed James Shipton as chair of ASIC, and I think it's fair to say his chairmanship of ASIC was, was not a spectacular success. Uh, Kelly O'Dwyer occupies or occupied the federal seat of Higgins, yep. and before she occupied that seat, it was occupied by James Shipton's father. There you go. And Kelly O'Dwyer was also a, worked for one of the major banks previously. A Goldman Sachs, I think. Yes, and James Shipton previously worked at Goldman Sachs a couple of years before he started at ASIC, and he was there in Singapore when, or in, in Asia, in charge of uh, investor relations and government relations in Asia at the time of the 1MDB scandal, which was a billion-dollar scandal, um, one of the biggest financial crime scandals ever. Now, he denies having any knowledge of it, etc. but the fact that the government employed someone who was at Goldman's, uh, in, particularly in that role at the time, of this enormous $1 billion scandal is just remarkable. And just to cap it off a little further, Josh Frydenberg has now gone to work for Goldman Sachs. So there yep, you go. Yep, that's right. Little Joshy's off to Goldman Sachs. There we well, go. at least he's not, at least he's not uh, contaminating Parliament anymore. 
yeah, that was no, that's <laughs> a good thing. All right, well, well, we'd, we'd probably better leave it there. Thank you so much for listening. Um, it's uh, it's been a pleasure to have you. Um, and keep in touch. We'll be uh, we'll be up again sh- shortly with our second episode. Yes, indeed. Thank you very much to our listeners who've taken the time to to listen to this podcast. Enormous appreciation. And in the next exciting episode, we're going to get stuck into PwC. Hundred percent. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Anthony.